Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the show that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and where else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We're continuing our conversation today about designing for refugees, and no such conversation could be complete without talking to T.K. Kriesig of Refugee Academy. Refugee Academy was a 2016 social design circle honoree, and we've been fans of their work for a long time, or at least since their founding. Here on the show, we've always got a lot of love for grassroots practices and people who just saddle up and go out and make the world better. And that describes Refugee Academy to a T. Anyhow, uh, for the last several weeks, we've been taking a global take on the refugee crisis and studying the issue through the lens of geopolitics and policy. Have a listen to our episodes with Killian, Neenan, and Miriam to catch up if you haven't. Today, we're getting a little closer to the ground. The same issues come up, but the story of Refugee Academy is a story about how people respond from the ground up. TK will describe it in much better detail, but in 2015, Germany went through a profound historical moment. Led by Chancellor Merkel, they made a national commitment to support as many refugees as they could. Merkel's famous proclamation, We Can Do This, became something of a meme, but it was backed up by a groundswell of goodwill from the German people. Enter Refugee Academy. It's an amazing story of how some ordinary people created something extraordinary. And those are the sort of stories we like to tell here on Social Design Insights. So let's get to the show. TK, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric, for having me. I, I've wanted to get you on the show for a long time. You know, at the Curry Stone Foundation, we've been big fans of Refugee Academy for a while. And, you know, when we were speaking earlier, I, I was saying that, you know, the refugees occupy a place in the popular imagination that I think is, is really driven by CNN and, and social media and these sorts of things. And they're always these tragic fundraising appeals. And I think it's vaguely dehumanizing. And I think that I've always been a fan of, of Refugee Academy because it, it stands in contraposition to that narrative. And I think it asks deeper questions about, you know, who refugees actually are and, and what they need. For those who, who aren't familiar, do you think you could take us back to the beginning? How was Refugee Academy started? What was the initial catalyst? The initial catalyst was when after the Syrian war kind of like got really hot and many Syrians kept on fleeing to Europe. And the borders were kept open. Suddenly, we had a huge influx of Arabic-speaking people in Germany, and it actually created the largest civil society movement in post-war Germany. So what is called the welcome culture went like a huge wave throughout Germany, and, and people opened their homes. People welcomed all these refugees from Syria on a private basis, but also our government tried to do the best to kind of like make them welcome. The problem was that Berlin, due to its history, was completely overcharged with the tasks. And so Berlin is also the startup capital of Germany. So a lot of kind of like people came together and said, okay, good, the government has huge problems. What can we do? I have a background in theater. I have been teaching German language my whole life to people who are not native to the language and using a lot of kind of like physical exercises. So what I started with a couple of theater friends from Berlin, we started teaching young minors uh, who were in a shelter in the suburbs of Berlin. So we went there once a week and we started teaching German. The problem was that it was very nice 
for those kids to kind of like have people who would kind of like interact with them. But many of them would have had like a history of kind of like their schools had been bombed. And we also had lots of Afghan kids in there. So the Afghans, for example, they didn't have proper schooling since maybe seven, eight years. So a lot of it was more like not only trying to help them to learn basic German, but it was far more important that we thought they have to actually enjoy learning something again. Being a German speaker, uh, and I speak lots of, lots of uh, like European languages, but I'm not familiar with Farsi, nor was I familiar with Arabic at that time. And so I always felt completely useless because I, as soon as you wanted to enter into kind of like more profound conversation, as soon as you wanted to talk about kind of like dreams in your life, basically none, none of the languages would be sufficient. So I thought, well, the only people who can really help there would be native speakers. And since Berlin is such an international city, so around Christmas, we kind of went around the Technical University of Berlin together with those kids. And we put up posters in Farsi and in Arabic looking for students who would give them math classes, biology classes, or just kind of like general information. That was the beginning of Refugee Academy. So this all started uh, as an entirely grassroots movement. I think that's one of the angles that I wanted to explore because I think sometimes in, in asking ourselves, you know, how to address refugee issues, we place a lot of confidence in the state. You know, we assume that the state will take care of it. Could you tell us a little bit more about the welcoming spirit in Berlin and Germany and, and maybe even what kind of example it could set for other cities and, and, and countries as they move into a period where they may be accepting many refugees as well? No, I think what happened in 2015 was quite a unique experience, and it can be definitely a best practice example for lots of countries in the world. By not shutting down the borders, in 2015, Merkel kind of like invited a lot of people into one of the richest countries in the world, which Germany is. And basically, the whole idea was that we as a nation that has inflicted two terrible wars on the world in the 20th century, we could actually start playing a completely different role. So it was her decision as the head of government, but it was really the German people that took up that challenge. And so all over Germany was especially in Munich, because Munich is the most southern metropolitan city that we have in Germany. So all the people coming through the so-called Balkan route, they would end up in Munich. And the train station in Munich had these amazing pictures where thousands of volunteers helped 10,000 of refugees to kind of like get organized. Just simple food at the beginning. Then they were distributed. That was government organization. They were distributed all over Germany. So basically every city, every little village would get a fair share of newcomers. Germany has been an immigration country for basically its whole history, especially in, in post-war Germany. We have had people from Italy, from Spain, from Turkey, from Greece. They all came over to actually help our economy grow in post-war Germany, and they were responsible for actually creating what is called the kind of like economic miracle, the Wirtschaftswunder. But 
despite the fact that we always invited these people over as workers and we have had second and third generation Italian people, Spanish people, Turkish people, we never had proper immigration laws. So this is something that is now about to change. And also the conservative parties who always kind of like denounced the idea of that Germany is an immigration country, they have actually kind of like also gotten the message. The negative aspect is that due to this Willkommenskultur, this welcome culture, we also have the kind of like reaction on the far right where people who are ultra conservative or who kind of like uh, tend to act according to very nationalistic and very um, narrow minded ideologies that they have also kind of like started collecting again and creating parties. So basically, we, we see the phenomenon worldwide. We are a global economy. We are one small blue ball in the universe. But somehow there's many people who are so scared by this that they react with, let's go back to the world in the 19th century or even before when basically you would not interact with people of another culture. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a frightening thing, you know, especially in, in a German context and, you know, with that specific history, you know, to see the, the AFD making party gains and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, let, let's let's talk about transcending that. And I, I think that's another thing about Refugee Academy that, that has always impressed me and impressed us is, you know, the idea of, uh, and, and for lack of a better word, assimilation, you know, how to bring people in and, you know, make them a part of, of community. To, to get back to the story, like, you know, after this initial kind of call for volunteers, I'm assuming it was responded to and, and you started growing an organization and a community where people could be taught various skills and arts in, in their native language. Do I have that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So um, one of the first things we did, like, I think it was 10 days after our founding meeting in late January 2016, we kind of like switch the theater classes and the German classes into, hey, now we have Arabic people who study in German universities come over and teach you about Germany and or teach you math. And so one of the first, uh, like what we always say, this is a very typical refugee academy lecture. Rawat Nasser, who is actually the chair of refugee academy now, uh, he's a civil engineer from Syria. He went out to teach math and all the uh, Arabic kids were kind of like, no, we actually want to ask you lots of things that we've been kind of like wondering about. And so it was more kind of like a lecture on homosexuality in European states compared to homosexuality in Arabic states. We have this system um, that we call team teaching. So we would always have like one teacher who speaks the native language, so the Arabic teacher. And then we would have two people also who know the topic, but who would kind of like repeat the lectures in German and in English. So that we have this kind of like uh, idea of a kind of like Christmas tree. So you have kind of like 10 minutes that are being taught in Arabic. And then there's five to 10 minutes when the actual classroom dissolves into three different groups. Those who want to can already try to kind of like repeat what they've learned in German or in English, or they kind of like go, okay, I, I don't 
they're neither English nor German yet, so I'll just repeat it again in Arabic. So on that very night, we had two young women there, one German woman for the German uh, version and the French lady for uh, the, the English part. I wasn't present that evening, but suddenly I got text messages from the two girls saying, oh my God, oh my God, do you know what's happening here at the moment? And um, because basically nobody was prepared for something like that. Nobody really knew each other because we're still in the kind of like team building phase. And so all I said was kind of like, okay, have trust in the people who have come together to create such a project. I'm sure he's going to do a great job. And, and this is basically the approach we've always been taking. We're not doing any kind of like textbook classes, but we are always looking at what do the students need. And especially the math classes in Arabic. Um, now we have an ex-math professor from the University of Damascus who has been saving the kind of like uh, A-levels and O-levels of many Arabic students in Berlin because he offers these classes for free. When we started the new semester in summer 2018, there were two girls who took part in his classes on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, and they had actually traveled three hours by train from a completely different part of Germany because they had heard about um, what Jalal has been doing. So we are really blessed with having many volunteers who are devoted teachers and who love to teach and who love to help others. You're listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We hope you've been enjoying this recap on the founding of Refugee Academy from TK Kriesig. But we're going to take a quick break. While we're breaking, check us out on social media where you can find out more about TK, Refugee Academy, and their ongoing work. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights and on Twitter at Social Design IM. If you're digging the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes, Google Pay, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. When we get back, we're going to be talking more about geopolitics, and TK is going to give us a little insight on what Germany can teach the world about welcoming refugees. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with TK Kriesig of Refugee Academy, and coming up, we're going to try and situate all this in a contemporary landscape and hopefully ask ourselves whether we're doing enough. Let's rejoin the conversation. You know, one of the things that, that I just uh, maybe daydream about is, you know, the approach that you're describing seems like it would work anywhere, right? That the city of Los Angeles or Tokyo or Melbourne could come together in such a way in a volunteer spirit and provide that sort of reception to any influx of any people. What inhibits that? Is there something specific to German or Berlin uh, culture or history that enabled that? Or do you believe that that's kind of possible in a more universal way? I think it's definitely possible in a more universal way. On the other hand, it was kind of like catalyzed because of these huge numbers of people from a culture that Germany wasn't used to at this point. So it was kind of like a wake-up signal for everyone. 
Now, we have lots of discussions in Germany at the moment about how we have to change our approaches in the schools, how we have to change teaching in general. So in the past uh, three years, I have attended tons of conferences on migration, but also on education and how to use digital tools in classrooms. Now, I firmly believe that having access to a great Wi-Fi and being able to watch great tutorials or to work online for yourself, for your homework, is something amazing. But especially for children and for teenagers, schools as meeting places where you have a face-to-face interaction provide so many opportunities to learn social skills and to really come together with people If you would remain at home, you might not encounter them because when we're, when we're online, we tend to stay in a bubble. But as soon as we go to a school, as soon as we go to a sports club, as soon as you go to a cultural event, suddenly there will be people who are, who are completely different. Like last week when I went back to Berlin, I revisited one of the language cafes that we have been kind of like cooperating with in the past uh, two and a half years. And it was really amazing to see many Arabic and Afghan friends again after a couple of months. But they had expanded. So suddenly there was a whole lot of Chinese people attending the language cafe and uh, two Vietnamese girls I had a wonderful conversation with. So it has moved from the, the forced migrants actually into a real kind of like open global community. And that was really amazing to see. That's a great segue. Let's talk a little bit about the Language Cafe and the other projects. I mean, Refugee Academy has has been diverse in its approach, incorporating, you know, theater and arts. Um, there's also gastronomy projects. Um, what is the full full breadth of, of what Refugee Academy is is teaching and doing now? Basically, what we always said: if there is a need by some people, we will try to provide a help for that need or a solution. And so we would usually kind of like ask around within our groups of friends, um, like the gastronomy project that was brought up by a super cool American guy, actually, who uh, worked in amazing restaurants in Berlin. And he said, the gastronomy in Berlin has a huge problem because many restaurants um, will only have like people for three or four months. Like many people will come to Berlin and kind of like start working in the gastronomic sector to kind of like just earn a fast buck and then they say okay i've had my three or four months of berlin now i'll move on so more, more like global uh, like globe trotters and uh, he created this whole idea of educating people on the job so that they could kind of like enter into kind of like low skilled jobs in gastronomy but actually be there then for two or three years so that would benefit the employers as well as the employees And there was one initiative. There's a huge hotel in uh, West Berlin, which they're right opposite of one of the um, the unemployment agency. So they're right opposite there. And so they have uh, created this huge fair where possible employers and employees would kind of like encounter each other. In the first year, it was kind of like focused on refugees Then in the second year, they already opened it up for other migrants. And so also there, 
from the need of the refugees, it has opened up to basically the whole migrant population in Berlin. In Berlin, you will find highly skilled IT guys who work on excellently paid jobs in the IT world, maybe for five or seven years already, who have actually never spoken more than three or four uh, phrases of German, because in Berlin, you can get around with English, no problem. The strange thing was that instead of turning this polylingual solution that it doesn't matter whether you speak German, English, Spanish, Turkish or Arabic, but that you can communicate with the people uh, within your team or your company, that this was denied to the refugees. So you would have highly skilled doctors or lawyers who would come in and because they do not speak German, they would be uh, excluded from the work market. And so one of the things we've always taken a look at is collecting people with the same professional background and putting them in touch with their German counterparts. So we had a very successful architects and civil engineers group, which was started by Rawat. We also focused on doctors and nurses. And so that was one of the other approaches we took. So Refugee Academy, whenever we saw a need, we would always kind of like take a real, very basic look at it and say, okay, what would be most helpful to these people? And so we would have like specialized language classes, or we would at least know if we couldn't provide them ourselves, where people could kind of like get this, if possible, for free. If not possible for free, then on a very uh, low budget. What has been the the biggest surprise so far? I mean, this the, this whole thing is is so recent. Um, what what stood out to you? Oh, there there are so many wonderful stories. For example, one of the things we did because our offices are very close to the Potsdamer Platz, which is the center of the Berlinale Film Festival. So what we did, we opened these rooms to the visitors of the Berlinale. And so in the second year of Refugee Film Cafe, we had uh, an Afghan filmmaker who I actually got to know in Hamburg, where we had a project with the University of the Arts. And he came down to Berlin to show a short movie that he did about forced marriages in rural Afghanistan, an amazing movie that has collected prizes in different festivals. So, so he would come down to Berlin for two days, and I had never seen him speak more German than in those kind of like half-hour interviews that the audience would do with him after they had seen his movie. The, the, the question is always, how can you create opportunities for every kind of people that they can interact? So, so you, might, you might have very, very shy people. So they need a completely different kind of like setting and space to kind of like start opening up. In many of our German classes, we would have people who are very interactive. So we would start out the German class in a location and then move it to another location where there was an event going on, where people would meet other people. So not only learning language, but actually always connecting them to different organizations in the city. So there's never just one level of learning. There's there's always kind of like uh, different layers of possibilities to expand your personality, your knowledge, 
and um, your capacities. That's amazing, and I think education as as it should be, uh, not just for refugees, but but for everybody. TK, could you tell us what what does the future hold? I mean, do people graduate from refugee academy, or do you is this a, just an ongoing program that will will live as long as it needs to? What what do you see in the future? Starting a kind of like legal teaching entity in Germany is one of the most complicated things. <laughs> <laughs> so when we chose to call our project Refugee Academy. We very uh, consciously kind of like took two things. We said refugees have, uh, it, it's got a bad connotation, but academy has about the best connotation if it concerns learning. So this is why we call it Refugee Academy. We've had lots of discussions whether we should maybe rename it, but we always kept it this way because we kind of like want to upgrade the whole idea of a refugee. But what we don't do, we don't uh, make people pass exams because this is something like setting up an organization that is allowed to pass exams is a huge amount of paperwork. And because we are still volunteer based, nobody of us would have the energy to go into that. It might be now with, uh, with a new chair. As I mentioned already, that's Rawat Nasser, the Syrian civil engineer. And uh, Nilab Alokuzai, she is a German Afghan lawyer, and she might be the person to actually do that miracle. Other than that, we basically continue doing our grassroots projects and passing people on to, let's say, proper universities and proper educations where, where we don't have to worry about all, all the legal backpack that you have to carry if you want to turn into a proper school. Proper education or no, I, I mean, it, it, it feels like a miracle worth following. And I, I hope that Refugee Academy will come back on the show at, at some point in the future and, and give us an update because I think it, it, it now more than ever, it stands out as a model for, you know, how to assimilate. Um, and the, the events of 2015 were unique uh, in contemporary memory. Um, but I think as we look forward in the world, we wonder where the next surge of refugees is going to come from and, and where they're going to go. Um, and I hope that uh, everybody is listening carefully uh, to the story of Refugee Academy and how they can be done in, in ways that are, are productive and, and humane. So, TK, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and um, helping us understand this amazing project that, that you have. You, you, were you the founder, TK, or were you the co-founder? I was the founder. I kind of like run around with lots of crazy ideas in my head and 90% of them never kind of like go beyond <laughs> a certain point. Basically. But some like Refugee Academy, they develop and they also, um, they have their own impetus. So what I'm super happy about at the moment that, that I have passed it on to the next generation, that I'm, I'm not so highly involved anymore. But on the other hand, I can, I can still kind of like uh, set certain uh, impulses and like the last week in Berlin was really amazing. So, so the, you had the perfect timing for this interview. As well. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll get to work on starting uh, to schedule the next one. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you, Eric, for having me. Thank you, TK. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, TK Kriesig of Refugee Academy, for sharing his insights into this remarkable organization and its founding. 
We try and bring you all sorts of perspectives here at Social Design Insights, but we'll admit to having a special fondness for stories of all those people out there in the world who just got up and did something. In my various works, I get asked all the time, I'm really concerned about blank. How do I get involved? Well, the story of Refugee Academy is one of the best answers I can give. Just get involved. Get up, stand up, walk out the door, and do something. Do something mighty. Anyhow, to learn more about Refugee Academy and their work, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. If you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. Join us next week. We're going to be headed to Toronto to speak with Tasha Friedis of NeedsList, a revolutionary new platform that helps refugees, disaster survivors, and others in distress get the resources that they need. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Seichner, and at the break, we're listening to Holiday Time by Hildegard Neff. Social Design Insights is produced by Baruch Seichner, and at the break, we're listening to Holiday Time by Hildegard Neff. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. Check us out on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Social Design Insights, and on Twitter at Social Design IN. Check us out for all the latest news on social impact design. Thank you.